Kent Jacobs was a 41-year-old from Hope Mills, North Carolina. He had a happy-go-lucky personality and loved NASCAR. On Sunday, March 10, 2002, Kent walked to a friend's as he usually did to watch the race. While there, his friend fell asleep. When the friend woke up, Kent was gone. He was never seen again. I'm Ed Denzel, and this is Unfound. States, the trade deadline for Major League Baseball has just passed. It's a time where fans of all of the teams have their opinions on what should be done. Should a team take on players and increase salary in an effort to make the playoffs? Or should the team dump players, dump payroll, and start planning for next year? And to listen to sports talk radio, you'd think the callers all have master's degrees, if not doctorates in sports management. Do this, do that. He's a keeper. He's a bum. If these fans were in charge, to listen to them say it, everything would go smoothly. Their team would win the World Series every year. They all make the process sound so simple. Somehow viewing the process from the outside, they think they're smarter than the people who do it for a living. With Unfound, I really try not to do that when it comes to the police. Although even I realize that once in a while I sound like one of those talk show callers. It's easy to judge law enforcement from the outside. Even though we can't deny the fact that missing persons cases overall aren't handled the way it seems they should be. Well, in Kent Jacobs' case, from the outside, and as much as any case we've covered so far, it's going to be difficult to figure out how this case hasn't been resolved by now because you're going to hear about viable suspects, credible witnesses, a motive for the crime, a confession, well, not quite, but close. You'll see what I mean. And in fact, everybody seems to have a good idea of where Kent's body is, but except for one day of action in 2010, nothing has been done in 13 years. Yep, hard to understand from the outside. From the outside also has another meaning for this episode. I'll be interviewing a man who came to the Jacobs family totally from the outside. He's not a relative, not a cop, not a private investigator, has no professional law enforcement experience at all. But he decided to get involved, and he's made all the difference to the Jacobs family. And now a summary of the case. This is brought to you by my friend Making Good site, charlieproject.org. Kent spent weekends at his mother's residence in the Colonial Heights area of Hope Mills, North Carolina. On Sundays, when there was a NASCAR race, he would walk two miles to watch it with his friend Roger. They'd known each other for several years, so this had become somewhat of a ritual. Roger lived in a trailer with his parents. During the race on March 10, 2002, Roger fell asleep. After this, at some point, Kent left. Roger's parents saw Kent leave and didn't find anything strange about it. They believed he was going home. However, Kent's family never saw him again. There was a rumor that Kent had been seen getting into a car where Brooklyn Circle meets US-301. However, this sighting has never been confirmed. Neither has a sighting near Porter Road in Hope Mills. 
An extensive search of the region produced no clues to his whereabouts. Kent's family believes he was vulnerable as a result of his diminished mental capabilities and someone he knew took advantage of him. Along those lines, several of Kent's childhood friends had grown up to be drug addicts and dealers, with Kent still hanging out with them once in a while. This has led to the rumor that they murdered him and disposed of Kent in a landfill. However, the efforts to search this piece of land have been sidelined by both the police and environmental concerns. Kent Jacobs has been declared legally dead. His case remains unsolved. The interview for this episode is with Dennis Mayen, Jacob's family friend, and the owner of findkent.com. Unfound News Most of the interview transcriptions have been turned in for the Unfound series of books. I've already reviewed a few of them, and so far things are looking very good. The first year of Unfound will be covered in the volumes. That will start with the first episode, The Disappearance of Ben Charles Padilla, and go at least to last week's case, Jennifer Wilkerson's. Depending on some factors, I may extend the amount of cases to the end of August. Not sure about that yet. Something that is going to be revealed to the public with the books will be the impact Unfound has made in the real world. The actual production of leads and or getting more attention to cases that have been somewhat forgotten. It's not something I talk about because some of the details are private. However, with the books, you'll get a general look at what happened, no names will be mentioned, after Unfound covered its cases. I don't know what kind of effect other true crime podcasts are having, except for Up and Vanished, of course, but I'm very pleased with what Unfound has accomplished in year one in the real world. Finally, for the first time, Unfound reached number one in the news-slash-politics section of Potomatic. Unfound had been hovering at like number three or number four for a while, But with the help all of you have given to the program, spreading the word about what we're doing for families, you pushed it to the top. Of course, the ranking can vary from day to day, week to week, but it's a great milestone. Thank you. Where you can find Unfound? On Facebook, the Unfound Podcast Discussion Group. We're getting very close to 1,300 members there. On Twitter, at Unfound Podcast. On Instagram, at Unfound Podcast. Last week, I forgot to mention the YouTube channel. On YouTube, the Unfound Podcast channel, most of the episodes are on there now. You can email the program, unfoundpodcast at gmail.com. You can subscribe at Podomatic, iTunes, and Stitcher. And please mention Unfound at WebSleuths, Reddit, podcasts we listen to, and all other true crime websites and forums. So happy to have on this episode of Unfound, Dennis Mayen. Dennis, welcome to Unfound. Thank you for having me, Ed. Tell the listeners a little bit about yourself. I mean, this is a little unusual in that you're not a member of Kent's family. You're not a private investigator. You're just a private citizen. How did you get interested in Kent's case? And what's your background? Okay, I always I always tell people, I always uh, reference the time that uh, Mike Tyson bit off Evander Holyfield's ear. And I just use that as a timestamp because everybody remembers that mm-hmm. moment in their life when they first heard about it. It was so so shocking. But that was June of 1997. That that same week, a young girl by the name of Kristen Montefiore from my hometown of Charlotte, North Carolina, was abducted while on vacation in the Bay Area of San Francisco. And uh, 
uh, early on, I went out to the Bay Area to try to find Kristen. And make a long story short, when you get to know a family of a missing child, you can't help but meet other families of missing children. And it was through the Mataferi family that I got to meet the family of Kent Jacobs. And at one point, the FBI, after nine years, they finally got involved with the Kristen Mataferi case. And the first thing they asked me to do was to back off. And so um, my time on the West Coast is over. So I came back to my hometown of North Carolina. I lived in Charlotte at the time. Uh, Kent Jacobs was in Fayetteville, North Carolina, about two hours away. And by this time, I was really emotionally involved with these families of missing children. So I asked uh, Jackie Jacobs, Kent's sister, if it would be okay if I came to Holt Mills. Because at this point, I learned that if a missing person is not found in the first couple of weeks, uh, they're no longer a priority with law enforcement. It's true. Law enforcement has... Law enforcement has brand new crimes every single day that hit their desk and they get buried very easily. It's like almost like you're a waiter and 5,000 people show up in your restaurant. They, they can't serve everybody, you know? Mm. So they, they're just trying to pick off the, the cases that are, are most likely solvable, but that's not good news for a missing child. So I kind of knew that there'd be nobody looking for Kent. And uh, so that's why I decided to go to Hope Mills. What were you, where were you doing? Let's, let's go back to 1997. What were you doing at the time? I mean, that you just decided this, this was the case. I mean, what, okay, was, going your, was, uh, what was going on in your life? I was a manager of the homeless shelter in Charlotte, North Carolina. And I had done that for many, many years. And to be honest with you, I went into it wanting to save the, the world. But 10 years later, I was burnt out and I was just burnt out and I, I had to get away. And so then I got a normal job. I was just making deliveries for a company called Apria Healthcare, which is home healthcare. And for the first time in my life, I was making very good money, but I wasn't feeling, you know, that satisfaction of doing something social. Sure. And I was looking for something to do. And then I saw the TV report about this young woman that was abducted. And um, I said, you know, I had some vacation time built up. And instead of going to Myrtle Beach and hanging out in the sand, I said, I'll use my vacation time to go to San Francisco and help this family try to find their daughter. And uh, one thing led to another, and here we are 20 years later. And sadly, Kristen Mataferi has never been found either. And Ken, you know, Kent Jacobs still has not been found. When yeah. people go missing, boy, it's hard to find them. We, we try our best, Ed. You know, it's, you deal with this all yeah, the time. Yes. It's tough. hard. It's hard. So you had 1997. And then you you were into that case. Were there any other cases that you took an interest in between 1997 and then when Kent disappeared in 2002? Yeah, I have, my life is really with three different families. It's Kristen mm -hmm. Mataferi. She was uh, disappeared in 1997 in the Bay Area, San Francisco. Mm -hmm. Kristen Mataferi's mother, Debbie, introduced me to the family of Kristen Smart from the, roughly the same area out in California on the Central Coast there. And uh, she was a... 19-year-old that was abducted from Cal Poly uh, University, right. and she still has never been found. And then Kent Jacobs. But um, believe me, trying to find one missing, is, is, it's almost a full-time job. It'll just consume your life. Can and I'm doing, I'm doing three, and, and I realize I, I can't do four or five. I'm trying to help too many families, you end up helping nobody, you know? That's right. So, um, yeah, that can be. To, uh, yeah, so that's where things are. And how... Long after Kent disappeared, did you get involved in his case? Okay, great question. Kent was 2002, and I did not. I didn't show up in uh, Hope Mills, North Carolina, until 2009. So it's been seven years. 
tell the listeners what you've learned about Kent over the last, what it would be, eight years. Uh, you've met the family. They know you. They know that you're yep. doing this interview on Unfound. Tell the listeners what it's what they need to know about Kent, his family, his upbringing, all of that. Okay, a couple of unique things about Kent. First of all, he was a Lumbee Indian. And be honest with you, before I met the Jacobs, I never even heard of that before. What's a Lumbee? A Lumbee is a tribe of, of Native American Indians in North Carolina, in the Fayetteville, uh, Fayetteville North Carolina area. Okay, very popular there. And the other thing about Kent, he was uh, mentally handicapped. Kent was 42 years old when he vanished, but he, he lived life through the, the prism of like a, a, like a small child, like a nine-year-old boy. And, um, but even though he had a limited mental ability, I'm telling you, he lived a very, very full and happy life. And I, I say this to a lot of people, to the people listening to your, your podcast, Kent was probably happier than most people that are listening to my voice right now. He had a very, very limited life, but he, but that life was full and he was very happy Kent from a really nice, his family loved him. And uh, unfortunately, what I think happened to Kent is uh, the day he disappeared, he had some paycheck money on him, about $200. Mm-hmm. And the local drug addicts found out that uh, this mentally retarded uh, man, and, you know, we, we talk about mentally retarded. The family is not offended by that word. They said, Dennis, that's what mm-hmm. we, that's the term we've we used all our life. And I know over the years, the political correctness came. You're not allowed to say that. But one of the Jacobs family themselves told me that that doesn't offend us. So when I heard that, I'm, so either way, retarded, handicapped. And but he did have a job. He had interests. He was into NASCAR. He had hobbies, just like any person with a, an average IQ. Yeah, he loved Harley Davidson motorcycles. He loved NASCAR, and uh, he loved his childhood friends. Now, this is very important to Ken Case when. When he was a small boy, before they realized his mental handicap, the local children that he grew up with, when they, they were all two, three years old, they they grew up. They were his lifelong friends, even even till when he was forty-two years old. They almost looked as Ken as like their buddy. They had to like protect Ken in their own way. The problem is, is these damn friends of his. They went the drug route. They thought heroin was a great way to to spend one's life. And when you go that path, it comes with just a million other problems. And even though these people that are suspects in the case, you know, they just spent time in prison for armed robbery. I mean, one of the suspects was arrested like 50 times. But in their own way, they still loved Kent. So I don't think Kent was uh, murdered. We think he was accidentally killed and then they panicked and here we are today all these years later would you say that kent was a fairly independent guy even though he did have this uh mental disability he had the ability once again to have this job i i read about how he would walk places kind of was okay on his own yes that's perfect he was famous in hope mills uh, the local residents they seen him walking kent would think nothing about going walking on like a six seven eight mile walk that meant nothing. He never had a license, never drive a car. I don't think he ever rode a bicycle, but he, uh, he, he would walk everywhere. And there, was, you know, there goes Kent. But uh, the Jacobs family, and this is very important that uh, people know this, they say Kent, it was almost like a deer. If, if you were in a car and he didn't recognize you, he wouldn't go within a mile. He would turn away and just go into the woods. He would, he, but if he knew you, he'd come right up to you. 
But if he didn't recognize you, he wouldn't go. He wouldn't come up to you because a lot of people over the years probably want to offer him rides. You know, they knew him, but he didn't recognize them. So it's almost like a deer that 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 fear. He would just turn around and go the other way. Okay. So he would not have been inclined to uh, jump in the vehicle with some stranger, as has been kind of a rumor or a sighting of him just jumping into a vehicle surrounding this case. Very unlikely that that would happen. Right. The people that know Kent best, his siblings and mother say, hell no, no way. Let's talk about those friends for a second. Uh, you had mentioned before their last name are, are Godwin. What can you tell the listeners about them before we get into some of the things that happened the day he disappeared? What can you tell them about that okay. family? It's actually two brothers that are kind of suspect in this case is Donnie and Kim. Uh, they're both in their mid fifties, uh, both of them very, very hardcore drug addicts. And they both within the last couple of years passed away. Um, I'm assuming because of their, their lifestyle. Okay. Um, th- these weren't, these weren't, um, occasional drug users. These, this was a lifestyle for them. Mm. But the problem is, is like I said earlier, when Kent was a two and three year old boy, these kids weren't drug addicts. They were just beautiful little kids. But And I'm, I'm told that the Godwin parents were really, really loving, nice parents. Sometimes your kids go sideways. And this happened in the Godwin family. So, uh, but Were they neighbors? Kids, were they, did they know the Jacobs? Were they next door neighbors? Or did they go to the um, same church? Or do you know anything well, like that? Yeah, yeah, for the first couple of years of Kent's life, they were literally neighbors. But then the Jacobs moved about maybe five miles away to a different part of town. And so that's one of the reasons why Kent would walk so much because he wanted to go see his friends. So he would always walk back to his old neighborhood to see his friends. And that's where the Godwins lived in the, in the Colonial Heights neighborhood of Hope Mills, North Carolina, off of Main Street there. So they grew up together. Kent grew up with them, although they didn't live necessarily beside each other. I didn't work together, but they kept in contact. He got together with these Godwin brothers once in a while. Do you know how often that was was it was it like a pattern or just would they yeah, it was very much a routine pattern kent i think he always had sundays off and uh it was very important to kent that he would leave his mother's house and walk the five or six miles over and, and spend the day with his not only the godwins but there's his other lifelong friend a guy named roger locklear who lived uh next door to one of the godwins at the time so there was, there was more than just a godwins it was about four or five different friends over there all right. And they were all kind of shady. Yes. Mm-hmm. They all, none of them went, none of them went the uh, Eagle Scout mm-hmm. and then graduate and go to Princeton or Harvard. They they chose the other, the other route in life. Okay. So tell the listeners what we know uh, for sure. In your opinion, I mean, you're, you're the expert on this. You've been working on this for eight years now. Sure. Um, tell them what, we know happened that day, that Sunday. Okay. It was a Sunday, March 10th, 2002. At one o'clock in the afternoon, the races were on. And uh, Kent was very important. What he would do is he would walk from his mother's house. He'd walk to a grocery store. It was called Carly C's. It's an independent IGA grocery store. He'd buy a six-pack of beer with his paycheck money. And then he'd walk over to Roger Locklear's house, which is really, this neighborhood is mostly trailers, okay? And... Roger told us that Kent was there just like he was there every other Sunday. It's almost like Kramer on Seinfeld. He almost didn't even have to knock. He'd just walk in. Kent was that close with his family. And, you know, the whole, the whole Locklear family, they all love Kent. But Roger said that he was watching the race and he fell asleep. 
And then when he woke up, Kent was gone. And what Kent did is he walked out of the trailer. I guess he got bored or whatever. And he walked uh, no more than, I'd say, maybe 40, 50 yards to the next trailer down, which is where Donnie Godwin lived with his girlfriend, Charlotte Royal. And what happened was Donnie and Charlotte found out that Kent had like $200 on him from his paycheck money. Do we know this is do we know this is fact or is this just yes. a theory? And no, this is fact. fact. This is fact. Okay. Yeah, okay. And I'm gonna I'm gonna go I'm gonna go down that fact. Sure, right please. Now. Please the reason yeah, the reason yeah, the reason why we know that is they have a local drug dealer in that area. So her name is named Belinda Hall. Now this is it's important for your your listeners to understand this. Even though these people are drug addicts, I mean there's good in everybody. The FBI will tell you there's good in everybody. You just gotta reach for it. And in their own way, they love Kent. In their own way, they think they're good people, and they don't. They don't think there's anything wrong with the drug lifestyle. But Linda Hall gets a phone call from Donnie and Kim, said, "Listen, we got Kent's paycheck money. We want to buy drugs." Belinda says, "Well, you got to wait because my mom's at church right now, and the drugs are in my mom's car." Okay, so they had to wait till the mother got home from church. The mother had no idea the drugs were in the car, and so the mother comes home from church. Belinda gets the car. Drives over. She's in. She's in the driveway of Donnie and Kent. She sees Kent inside the trailer, and she says, "Hi, Kent." He weighs back high, and then they do the drug deal. And Belinda, once once Kent was missing, Charlotte Royal initially told the cops that they didn't see Kent that day. All right. Belinda realized, okay, I'm just dealing drugs, but I know Kent. He's missing. This is really serious. She goes. I'm not going down for this. I'll cop to the drugs, but I need to tell the police the truth. And Belinda told the cops that Charlotte and Donnie were lying, that Kent was in the trailer, and that she used, that they took money from Kent and sold the drugs. And, and Belinda was the one who gave us that lead, and she told the police that. And when did this all happen? Uh, you know, that day, of course, Kent is gone. Roger wakes up. He's gone. What does he think happened at that time? Before we, before Belinda came forward and all of that, did he think that Kent went home? Did he think that he went just walked back home, or did he suspect that he might have gone down to the Godwins? Any idea about any of that? Yeah, I talked to Roger out on his front porch one day, and Roger, just for you, before Charlotte Royal started dating Donnie Godwin, he was dating. She was dating uh, Roger Locklear, and Roger said mm. the best thing ever happened to me is that woman left because. He, you know, he said she was just crazy, but um, Roger thinks pretty much what I just what I think. Roger thinks that something happened to Kent in that trailer where Donnie and Charlotte lived. I guess what I'm asking is, he wakes up from his nap during the NASCAR race. What did he think? Did he did he not know that he went right down the trailer? He just thought, oh, when did he find out that Kent was actually? had actually disappeared. Yeah, he wakes up, he goes, where's Kent? Where's Kent? And his mom and dad said, well, he just walked out the door a while back. And I don't think Roger gave it a second thought because, you know, they've been doing oh. this for every Sunday for years, you know, it's just okay. a routine for them. Okay. So he didn't feel motivated to go look for him. He just thought, I ah, just probably walked right. home. And when did he find right. out? When did he realize that Kent was missing? I mean, after this day, and like you, you already said, kind of probably what happened here. But when did people finally start realizing that Kent Jacobs had disappeared? How long did that okay, take? Well, Jacobs, Jacobs family knew that night because it was such a routine in their family. But the whole neighborhood and everybody, they didn't really know anything until I believe it was the next day. The Jacobs 
discover that you know their their son is missing, their brother is missing. What did the police do? What did the police do? Well, again, I'm, I'm there seven years later, but they, okay. they went out and interviewed uh, Donnie and Charles Royal. And at first, Charles said she didn't see the, she, they didn't see Kent that day. And, okay. and then they went to Belinda Hall. And Belinda Hall said, that ain't true. I was in their park. I, I was in their driveway selling drugs and Kent was in the house. What what did the Jacobs do at that time? Did, have you t- I know you've, you've talked to them. Did they organize a search? Did they, did, did they at the time suspect that the Godwins might have had something to do with the disappearance? What were they thinking at the time? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the very first thing they did is they called down to the restaurant where Mrs. Jacobs worked because uh, there was another lady that worked there whose daughter was also kind of like a, a drug person. And they wanted to they wanted to know if uh, if she had heard anything about Kent. And I apologize. I forget the lady's name now. But. This is very early on, day number mm. two, okay, the, the following morning, mm. and the girl's reaction, and I, okay. she goes, oh, I think I know what happened to Kent. Let me let me go talk to my peeps, and I'll get back to you. And uh, then nothing ever came about that. But that was the very, very first action that Jacobs took. Um, but then we got a, a word that Kent was seen over by this guy's uh, property, a guy named Cliff Jones. He, he owns a... Uh, some property, uh, it's about half the size of a, a, a Walmart. And mm-hmm. it was just a bunch of dumpy old trailers on there. Just think of Sanford and Son, okay? Just, it was just trash. And uh, they knew that Kent, uh, somebody said that they might have seen Kent over in that area. They knew the Godwins hung out at that, that dumpy trailer, okay? So Keith Jacobs, which is one of Kent's uh, two brothers, went over there and the reason why I took time to describe this trailer park as trashy, 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 low-rent trash is when Keith went over there the following morning to inquire if anybody's seen Kent. Lo and behold, the owner of the property, Cliff Jones, and a young woman, they're in one of the trailers tearing the carpet out, and he could smell a strong odor of bleach, like they were like super cleaning the trailer with bleach. And I promise you this, Ed. Uh, yes. The concept of bleach ever being on that property in the last 30 years was non-existent. Not a clean no property. Way. No way. No. And then for him to go there the next morning and they're tearing out the carpet, you can smell this bleach. Uh, that that And that showed up in the, in the search warrant that we'll talk about later. Mm-hmm. But that was one of the key things that the detective wrote to get the judge to uh, sign off on the search warrant on that property. But that didn't happen for a while. But within the, those first few days, to your knowledge, I know you came in this a little, a little later, seven years right. later. Uh, to those days afterwards, what did the Jacobs think happened? Uh, I mean, obviously, one of them went over there. But obviously, this wasn't enough at that point to maybe go look at that um, Cliff Jones's property. These people were questioned. They lied. What was the popular opinion circulating around Hope Mills at, at, the to- at that time? Well, one of them, which uh, I remember the Jacobs talking about this when I first met them. Uh, the area we're talking about is very, very, very close to Interstate 95. And they thought, even though Kent would never get in anybody's car, they had to think of the impossible. They thought somebody sweet-talked Kent in a car and then north or south in 85 and he was gone. Or 90, Interstate 95. Mm-hmm. And he was gone. Um, so that was just, you know, one of the things that was swirling around their brains. But you, said, but no, you, all these years later, you dismissed that sighting. That's just a yeah, rumor. No. It's the, like never yeah. happened. 
Right. I, yeah. What happened was Belinda Hall is, I think, telling the truth. Mm-hmm. And uh, I personally think that here's what I think happened. Even though they're drug addicts, they still loved Kent. And you got to try to think the way these drug addicts think. Their mind doesn't work in a healthy way. So they steal his money off of this mentally retarded man. But they love him. So in their way of thanking him, I think that the money they bought drugs from uh, Belinda Hall, it's possible they shot up Kent with it as their way of saying thank you. So Kent's not a druggie. Kent likes to drink his like beer on Sundays, you know. And uh, Kent comes from a strict household. They don't. Kent's not a druggie. But I think that one of those Godwins in Charlotte Royal, I think that they, uh, in their own twisted way, saying, here, buddy, we're going to take care of you. And then they may have overdosed him. And then they panic. And they knew that one safe haven they can go to, they could go to Cliff Jones' property because Cliff Jones has a very, very checkered past. And he spent time in prison for murder. And uh, he was like the patriarch of the lowlifes of that area. And I think they panicked and they went to him to ask him what to do. And I think they buried him on Cliff Jones's mm-hmm. property. And was this not obvious at the time? Did Because the, the police didn't do anything for a while. And we're going to get into because there's a, a very – very bizarre part of this case that we still haven't gotten into. But at the time of 2002, March into April, into May, the police couldn't put this all together. Yeah, I kind of want to stay away from that for this reason. I didn't show up until 2009, Mm -hmm. and it wouldn't be fair to the Commonwealth County Sheriff's Department if I pretend to let your audience know that I know what they were doing back then, because I have no idea. Okay. I have no idea. Would you, in your opinion, years later, can you at least say this? Uh, do you think they did everything they could to find Kent Jacobs uh, in March of 2002? Well, I, I'm going to throw a blanket no over that, but I I say that is true with every police department in every state and every city in this nation. Only be, they, everybody likes to say, you know, we've turned over every rock. Well, no, they haven't, because there's too many people committing too many crimes. There's too many bad guys out there, and the cops are doing everything they can to try to solve the case. But the problem is when they come into work tomorrow morning, there's 20 new cases. And they don't have the manpower to do everything they can. So that's my – I'm pretty sure I nailed that one. All right. Fair enough. Uh, So the Godwins, if they are the perpetrators of this, along with uh, the girlfriend, Charlotte – Belinda Hall sees something, and this Charlotte Royal, Belinda Hall remembers seeing something. She comes forward at some point later. Still to this day, nobody's been charged with anything. Uh, Kent's still not been found, and we'll get into that in a second. But in 2005, something very interesting happens. You mentioned Cliff Jones. What does he do in 2005, three years after Kent disappeared? Yeah, okay, now Cliff Jones uh, has a friend named uh, Hank Harris. Um, It's almost one of those classic uh, rich man, poor man stories where you have two brothers and one grows up to lead a very successful life and the other one goes the other way. Well, even though they weren't biological brothers, they were very, very close friends as, as children, okay? And Hank Harris grew up to lead a very, very wonderful, respectable life, and he became the fire chief of Hope Mills, North Carolina. Cliff Jones went the other route, the, the, the crazy route, the drugs and uh, and just the dirty he, property, like said, he, the, the bad property. Yeah. yeah. And he spent time in prison for murder or manslaughter. I don't know, you know, technically, but he sp- spent time there. You killed a couple people. But um, 
even though they lived different lifestyles, they knew each other growing up. Now, I referenced earlier they were best friends. That may, I don't know if that's true, but they knew each other very well as young children. Okay. Now, the fire station, the Hope Mills, is only maybe three quarters of a mile at most from Cliff Jones's property. And Hope Mills is a small town, so just your daily living of your life, they're going to run into each other a lot. So over the years, they just kept in touch. They knew each other. And one day, Hank was in his fire station and looks up, and there's Cliff Jones knocking on the door, wanting to talk to him. And he says, come on in, Cliff. What can I do for you? And Cliff says, listen, it's time. You need to c- come get Kent Jacobs. He's buried on my property. They got him buried in a refrigerator. And uh, send your guys out here. And let, let's get him. It's time. Right? This Okay, so the listeners need to – this is 2005. This is 12 years ago. We heard about the bleach in a, a dirty trailer on Cliff Jones's property in 2002. And then maybe he grows a conscience or whatever. He finally – comes up to, not to the police station but the fire chief who is uh, an acquaintance somebody he knows he tells this story this uh hank harris guy he must have uh, maybe fallen out of his chair when he heard that yeah he was caught off guard and the other thing i haven't told your listeners yet cliff jones owned a backhoe on his property and uh he would always be digging holes uh and so that was another reason why the jacobs were very suspicious of that property right away sure and so when, when Cliff walked in and told Hank that, you know, come on, he's buried in a refrigerator, it was totally believable because Cliff had the ability to do that with his backhoe, you know. And so Hank Harris does something that you, me, and all your listeners would have done. He gets on the phone and he calls the sheriff's department. And then crickets. He Nothing. He never heard from the they – they never went out and followed it up. Have you talked to Hank Harris? Up. Have you talked to him once you got oh, involved? Yeah. And and they just did nothing. He he never went back like a month later to see if they did anything or. Well, I'll tell you what I know. I'll tell you what I know. Sure. So I show up. This is 2000. Kent disappears in 02. Cliff Jones walks into the fire station 05. I show up in 09. And the first thing I do when I get in town is I get you know a bunch of flyers. And I just start passing them all around the area where I knew Kent was last seen. I don't know, maybe three to 500 flyers. I don't remember exactly. But one of those places I walked into was the Hope Mills Fire Department, fire station. And I walk in there, and what do you know? There's a guy named Hank Harris there. And I hand him a flyer. He goes, you know, Dennis, I got to tell you this story. And he says, uh, back in 2005, and, you know, we just shared it with you. And he says, you know, I called the sheriff's department. I said, what happened? He goes, well, nobody ever got back to me. I said, you're kidding. So luckily, at the time I arrived, uh, when you have a homicide case or a missing person case, law enforcement, they do this a lot, but they, they rotate the officers because they want to keep them fresh and keep new eyes on it. And right about this time, there was a detective, Nan Trogdon, who was just handed Kent's case. So she's handed the case right about the time I'm talking to Hank Harris. And so when I mm-hmm. called the sheriff's department, the Jacobs, Detective Trogdon got that report. And... The first thing she did, she gets in her patrol car and she drives out to the fire station, which you would have thought somebody would have done that in 2005. Sure. But it didn't happen. And Hank confirmed to Detective Trogdon that, yeah, what I told Dennis is the same thing I'm telling you. So now Detective Trogdon's like, well, we got something here. And it was because of Detective Trogdon that she put the pieces together that we we were able to get that search warrant for May of 2010 for Cliff Jones's property. 
I want to ask you something about Hank Harris. And since you have so much experience, you have like 20 years of missing persons experience. No, not to make, of course, you feel old, Dennis, but you have a lot more experience in this than than I do. Is does that strike you as odd that somebody finds something out about a disappearance, goes to the cops, and then never follows up? Is that something that you run into elsewhere? Have you ever heard about that before? It strikes me as odd. It might strike the listeners as odd because you go tell the cops something, a big case, and then you don't hear about anything. I think somebody would check in after a month. Hey, did you guys do anything? What do you think about that? Well, here's the thing. The source of the information was not just Joe Blow on the street. It was the fire chief of that town. Yeah. So he has credibility and clout. And he's the one who made the contact with the sheriff's department. Yeah. Now, why, why they, I don't have an answer for you, Ed. I don't have an answer. Have you ever yeah, asked, have you, has, has that ever occurred to you to ask Hank Harris that, you know, that question? Because that's a question I'm not, wouldn't mean to be putting him on the spot, but that would be a very interesting question because I've heard about it before in cases that, that I've maybe a couple that I've covered people, you know, have tips and then they never find out if the police followed through. And so somebody that's actually kind of in a law enforcement position, kind of, you know, doesn't follow up with something like that. You know, I never, I never put that question to uh, the fire chief. And I think as you're asking me, I'm I'm thinking to myself, why the hell didn't I? But I think the reason being, because at the same time, detective Trogdon was inserted into the case and, that woman is wonderful, right. and I didn't have to worry about her following up on things. That was right. never an issue. But that I, was still. She was, but that was still four years after Cliff Jones had walked into the fire department. Yeah, but I didn't. But I didn't know about it until yeah. 2009. Okay. And, and Detective Trogdon came on the case in 2009. So it all, mm. she and I kind of got there at the same time. So once I handed it to her, I let her, you know, because I I knew she mm. followed it up. Sure. And I know in her position, she's not going to say anything maybe on the record about, you know, what went on in those years between 2005, somebody credible giving a tip and it not being done anything about it until 2009, which, right? you know, you, right. you know, obviously you've been in this for 20 years. I've been doing this for a little while. Missing persons cases are tough enough as it is. Then on top yeah. of that, People giving in good tips and not following up just adds another layer of, I think, of difficulty to the whole process. Well, uh, here's where I think the police make the mistake. The, po- the police will never say to a family, I can't work a case today because I got 20 new ones today. They're all, all they're ever going to say is we're doing everything we can. It's an open case and we're following up everything. But that's not true. They can't follow up everything because there's not enough of them. There's just too many guys out there beating up their wives or throwing their kids down the stairs or breaking into a store. And the cops, when they go to work that day, they got to do what their bosses tell them to do, you know, and yeah. you get to work and there's only 10 cases. You got to do these today. You, you don't have time to work on Ken's case. And then Wednesday happens and then Thursday happens and then July, August, September, and the years go by. And that's the problem. I think though, I mean, that, those are obviously, I don't know if I'd exactly call them reasons, but I know that's what the police say. Do you think that that flies with the public? Do you think that I think my listeners, as they're listening to this, we're recording this on a Monday. It's going to play on a Friday. They're listening to this, and I'm sure some of them are outraged right now. <laughs> okay, but here's the issue. Here's the other thing. In, in 20 yeah. years, I don't know how to do this. Yeah. You can. You can. You can't. If you try to question a police department, 
boy, they will shut you down in a yeah. second, man. And then I'm just yep. a private citizen. I'm a nobody. Yeah, I, I can't. I can't beat that. So, That's true. Yeah. That's true in North Carolina. It's true in Washington. It's true in California. It's true in Texas. Right. I, I have to agree. I have to agree with that. When did the, to your knowledge, when did the the Jacobs find out about this tip of Cliff Jones uh, coming? I guess they didn't find out till 2009 either. 2009. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my! All right, so we so the tip comes in. The the Kent is buried on this land. Reminding the listeners, this is where this trailer was that smelled of bleach on Cliff Jones's property. Uh, he comes in 2005. The police seemingly, it, it, as far as we know, as private citizens, no, didn't do anything. Maybe they did something. We just don't know about it. And then I think, 2000. I think the latter is true. Okay. And then 2009, this new detective is on the force. You meet her. You get involved. What happens next? Okay, what happens next? The other thing, you're, you're, I, it's hard to share everything, but the, uh, Cliff Jones' property, he wouldn't pay to have his garbage taken to the landfill. He would bury all the garbage with his backhoe on his property. So the word would go out to all his uh, renters, bring all your trash out on Tuesday at noon because I'm going to bury it. Because we're not going to have a garbage uh, burial for another three weeks, so get all your stuff out there now, okay? And this has been going on for years and years, if not more than ten years, okay? So Cliff turned that property into his own private landfill, and believe it or not, on that land is buried a Trailways bus. That's so how deep it is. This guy's a hard, yeah, That's this, how deep. a hardcore barrier of garbage, all right? So um, the Jacobs are, you know, they're putting two and two together. That's, the Jacobs are not stupid people. And they can kind of see what happened. And they've been begging the sheriff's department to get on that property. And I got to be careful here because I don't know what the previous people did, but I know it wasn't until Detective Trogdon came on the scene that that thing started to, to move. And on May, I think it was uh, the last day of May of 2010 is when the search warrant was executed on that property. Okay. Based on the tip that Cliff Jones gave to Hank Harris five years before that. That was one. It wasn't just because of that. The mm-hmm. had other corroborating. That was like uh, you know the straw that broke the camel's back. That put it over the edge. But she had she had other stuff here. So you have this search warrant. You have it there in front of you, Dennis. What does it say? Okay, one of the things I want to point out. It says um, uh, here. Here's the key line. The the affiant. I mean, Doctor Tr- uh, Detective Trogan states that there is probable cause to believe that a refrigerator containing the human remains of Kent Jacobs is buried on the property belonging to Gregory Leonard Jones. Now, Cliff Jones passed away in 2009, and his son, who's not a druggie, he's one of the only family members of that, that family, the Jones family, who's living a normal life, the property is willed to his name. That on March 12th, so this is two days after Kent disappeared. Now, this is in the search warrant. Several days after Kent Jacobs was reported missing, Keith Jacobs went by the home of Cliff Jones looking for Kent and saw Cliff Jones and an unknown female removing carpet from the mobile home. While at the residence, Keith Jacobs saw Cliff Jones and the female cleaning floor tiles, and there was also a strong odor of bleach. Now, that is only preposterous when you realize how filthy and dirty and just trashy this property is for the last 20, 30 years. So. Mm. There's no reason for them to have the police there unless they were trying to cover up a crime, is my point. True. True. So they get out there with this search warrant. Greg, uh, uh, by this time, 
Um, Cliff is dead. His son owns the property now. I don't know if he lives there or not, but he owns the property. They they have this search warrant. Uh, he does he is he willingly let them on? Was there any friction there? I mean, they, you can't do anything anyway. But what went on when they showed up to dig? Yeah, Greg lived um, uh, about 30, 40 miles away. Um, he, Detective Trogdon notified him that, that they were going to dig. So he was there the day of the warrant. And Detective Trogdon told me that she personally handed Greg Jones a copy of the search warrant. So they get there. Greg's there. They start digging. They don't know exactly where to dig, though, do they? Well, they have a certain, based on other uh, people who have come forward, um, they have an idea where to start to look. Now, remember, the search warrant was not only based on Hank Harris. Detective Trogdon had other information, and she had other tips about where on that property it would be a good place for them to look. So uh, it was just more than just Hank Harris. So I think they had some indication. So, th- so they get to the property, and they start digging early in the morning. And as they put the backhoe into the earth to try to start digging, all they get was garbage. Because remember, this place is like a landfill. And, they, and, and Detective Trogdon said every time they put the, the claw of the backhoe into the earth, they see the garbage and then they see water. And the problem was that property was right near the Cape Fear River basin. Okay, The water table led right into the Cape Fear River. And they were very, very worried about an environmental uh, toxins leaking into the, the, the water supply. And so believe it or not, they never went far enough in the search that day to dig up the refrigerator because they were worried about the environmental hazards. So they stopped the search warrant without digging up the refrigerator. How long did they end up digging that day and how many holes did they make? Do you know, uh, before they figured out, before they figured out that there was going to be an environmental problem here? Uh, we can only get so close to the property. So I wasn't, you know, I was maybe several blocks away because they had, they had a cordoned off, but I know that they, they stopped the search in the very early part of the afternoon. And I met with Detective Trogdon two days later. I met her down at the, uh, the library in downtown Fayetteville. And the first thing she said to me that day, she said, Dennis, there is no way that Kent Jacobs is not on that property. And she explained to me that um, law enforcement, one thing, they, they have to solve crimes, but, and they partially got their hands be- cut behind their back because they, they have to follow so many rules and regulations. All right. And I guess one of the regulations is that they're not allowed to continue dig on the property if there's environmental hazards. So they were they were told to stop the dig and they wanted a, a North Carolina Department of uh, uh, Nuisance and Abatement is what it's called to come on the property and declare it a hazardous waste area. So that way, the cost of the cleanup would not be re- uh, held by the taxpayer of San Luis Obispo County or uh, I'm sorry. Cumberland County, but Greg Jones would have to pay for it. And Detective Trogdon told me that process would take about two weeks so they can get back on the property. Well, two weeks came and gone, and now we're 2017, and they've never gone back to that property. And so I asked Detective Trogdon, so what's going on here? And she told me that um, search warrants are one-shot deals, that once they leave the property, it's almost like a double jeopardy thing to protect the landowners. Law enforcement cannot get back on the property unless they have new evidence. So they can't use the existing evidence to get a second warrant. 
And Detective Trogdon told me she had every she put everything she had into that first warrant. They didn't have any new information. I'm like, wait a minute. You guys stopped the search warrant because of the environmental waste. That's not Ken's fault. And I just think that the mandate of that search warrant should be honored, you know. But here we are seven years later and did she uh, not think it was that did not not occur to her when they left the property back in 2010 that, you know what, if we stop this, we may have a problem getting back on here because this warrant's just I, a one shot deal. I don't know the answer to that, but let me, cause I know you got a bunch of uh, listeners. Um, the Jacobs family are ecstatic with having detected Trogdon into their life. They, they, they worship the ground that woman walks on. Um, Detective Trogby, even though she's a big detective, she's still just an employee of the Cumberland County Sheriff's Department, and sh- she's got to do what the chain of command says. So in some ways, she's a very powerful person. She's the lead detective in this case, but in another case, she's just an employee of the Sheriff's Department, and she's at the mercy of what her superiors do. Sure, sure. And um, She's so not an independent investigator. She's not a private investigator. She works no. for the government. And when you know it, damn it, these uh, government jobs—they offer pensions. So she put her twenty years in, and she's retired now. Oh, she so, is. You know, yeah, she mm-hmm. she moved out of state, and uh, I hate it when that happened, man. Let's—I want to explore this this warrant and this Department of Nuisance and Abatement issue uh, a little uh-huh. bit more. Um, is it your opinion that the last seven years is more because of the warrant issue that it hasn't they haven't gone back, or is it more because of uh, the, the other kind of red tape with the environmental issues? Because I'm going to, get, to guess the environmental issues haven't changed since 2010. You had told no, me also I, I, though. I think, okay, please, please answer that, and we'll move on. Please. I think the issue is a little more uh, uh, harder to swallow than, than where you, the road you were going down. Okay. What I think happened is, remember I told you Detective Trogdon is great. She's just an employee. I think that her superiors, it wasn't it wasn't as important to them as it was to Detective Trogdon to dig up that refrigerator for whatever reason. And I think that when Detective Trogdon retired, it's a whole new show. I just it lost all its momentum. It lost all its momentum. Because I would, I mean, I, and I know, you know, we've talked about this a couple times in this interview already, that the police, they, you know, just because a disappearance happens doesn't mean all other crimes stop. You're going to have burglaries the next day, and you're you're going to have other disappearance cases that pop up and everything. But, you know, I would think that if the Hope Mills Police Department or the county sheriff's office or whoever could get a, at that point, a, a, a ten, an eight-year disappearance case off their books, and also they have some suspects that are sitting right in their jurisdiction. They don't have to go chasing after them or anything. And maybe a couple of them may, might have been dead by that time. But to, that yeah, would really be a feather in their caps. But that's not – it doesn't seem that's how they looked at it. I don't have I, – I hear what you're saying, Ed. Yeah. I don't have the answer. I don't have the answer. Okay. But I do know – that that property is very very accessible. It's not a it's not a gated community. Anybody can walk down Yuan Street and legally, without going to that property, you can you can stand on Yuan two feet away from the property. And how hurtful must that be to the Jacobs family, knowing that the lead detective says Kent is buried in a refrigerator on that property, and they can't get to it 
because the sheriff's department laughed that day. At least, at the very, it's very, a it's a very it's a very sad and bizarre situation because yeah. I mean this has to be the first case I think that we've covered on Unfound where you there's a 95 percent chance of where we know where this person's remains are. I mean all the cases that I cover we have no idea. We have no idea. And in fact, I know on one or two occasions we say to, well, if we knew where so-and-so was, we could just go get her or him right now. This is a case where we kind of do know where he is, and nobody seems to want to do anything about it. Um, no, I wouldn't go that far. To be to be totally – I know it's important to you to, to mm. paint an honest picture. Yeah. I, I, we don't know that Kent is in a refrigerator on that property. All, all that we know is that, okay, that makes the most sense. Plus, the lead detective in the case that knows a lot more than you and I will ever know. Yeah. Believes so wholeheartedly. And she took a warrant to the judge who signed it. She thinks he's in refrigerator. So at the very least, dig up that refrigerator. If Ken's not there, then let them go look somewhere else. And, and the, the next tip, you know, try to talk to Belinda Hall again. And, uh. Yeah, I want to talk about Belinda Hall in a second with uh, with the experience that you had with her. But I guess the other yep. point would be that how many how many refrigerators are buried on that property? If a bus is on there, there's probably fifty refrigerators possibly buried on that property. And I think I think the uh, the sheriff's department is asking the same questions. Like, and uh, I I don't know if that if that is a roadblock for them to go back mm-hmm. there. What is what is Greg's Greg Jones's attitude toward all of this. I mean, he's the one that owns the property. I mean, he could allow somebody to go into that property and start digging at any time. What has been his attitude in the last seven years? Okay, Greg is right and he's wrong on that property. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Um, the Jones family are just crazy. Like I tell you, the, the, the father was in prison for the manslaughter murder, I think on two different occasions. They have two daughters. They're both they're both, uh, you know, mother, uh, uh, you have a mother and then a daughter and then, uh, then a sister. They're all drug addict prostitutes. Okay. The daughter told me that she and her mother are doing the same guys. And that's the kind of family we're talking here. Now there's one exception, Greg Jones. He never bought into that lifestyle. Greg, he says, this is my family. I love him, but I'm not living my life like that. Greg is a stable person, has a job, owns a house. Okay, that's why I think the father willed everything to him because the girls would have just sold it for drugs or whatever, you know. So when Detective Trogdon handed him the search warrant that day, the cops come in, and cops are great, but they can also have a little bit of arrogance to them. It's just I think they're trained is trained into them. And when they started digging on Greg's property, once they stopped, they never refilled the holes in, and they left Greg's property even destroyed even more than it was. And Greg was furious with the sheriff's department that the least they could have done is refill the holes in. And the, the, the cops basically said, go to hell and, and left the property. And I don't know if they were laughing at Greg, but that was, that was their goodbye to Greg that day. They, they really tore up his property without putting it back. And they should, they should have refilled the holes in. It wouldn't have taken them that long to do it. And for that reason, Greg is really, really angry at the sheriff's department. And he's, you know, he won't cooperate with them anymore. So he has not cooperated in the last seven years. To your knowledge, do you have any idea if somebody like one of the Jacobs family has ever gone and found him and talked to him about them possibly paying for somebody to 
independently go on his property and work there for a couple of days. Has that ever happened? Do you know? Well, I mean, I, I personally wrote a letter. I found his P.O. box and I wrote a letter, but he never responded to me. I got the address for one of the Jacobs siblings to go out there. And I don't know what happened that day. They went to the wrong house. It was a long drive for them. And they came back and it was never, it's something that should be followed up on because uh, maybe Greg now will have a, he won't be as angry as he was back in 2010. So, I mean, if he's coming uh, back, they got to, they got to dig up that refrigerator one way or another. Yeah. I mean, he's not responsible. I mean, it's not like he's one of the suspects. It's not like he was one of the ones who possibly might've killed Ken Jacobs. He's a totally innocent party. He has control over his own property. There might be some environmental issues, but maybe somebody can sneak onto the property without the government seeing, you know, to dig around for a few days. You know, that's what I see in my head. And I'm hoping that's what can come out. Uh, of this of this episode, that's where I'd like to point, uh, you know, this in- investigation to go. Uh, I want you. This was uh, something, and I I want the people to know that uh, Dennis has taken some risks in trying to figure out what happened to Kent Jacobs. Uh, Dennis, tell the listeners about the meeting that you had with Belinda Hall. What year was it? What were the circumstances of that? Of that? What happened that day? Well, it was 2009, and I heard this this lady named Belinda Hall. And I remember she's a Lumbee Indian. She's about six foot, and she's over 200 pounds. And and uh, and you know, she was. I heard that she was just another drug dealer, prostitute, and that she was the one who sold drugs that day. And um, she was moving around a lot. I couldn't find her. And then and then one day, somebody gave me an address that turned out to be accurate. It was in one of the the, the you know, the lower rent areas of, of uh, Fayetteville, North Carolina. And so I was walking around. I'm the only, you know, I stand out. I'm six foot five, big white guy. And I'm in this Lumbee, Lumbee Indian area. And I go to this house and uh, I I could see people looking out, everybody suspicious of strangers in the neighborhood, you know. And uh, I made eye contact with somebody. I said, I'm looking for a Belinda. And I said, uh, I, heard, I heard she works the streets. Uh, uh, I'd like to hire her. And one guy goes, wait a minute, wait a minute, I'll get her, I'll get her. He showed a lot of interest. And next thing you know, this Lumbee Indian lady comes comes down the steps. She was very nice to me. And I said, uh, I basically told her I wanted to hire her for a prostitute for a couple, you know, for an hour. She goes, well, come on in the house. And so she walks me into the house where all these, these guys are just sleeping on the couch. And she walks me back in the hallway into the back bedroom. And there's this guy in the bed. And she she uh, rubs his shoulder and said, get up, get up, get out of the house. And I guess the guy knew what the deal was. And he got out of the bed and walked out of the bedroom. So now it's just me and Belinda. And now I'm at the point where I got to tell Belinda that I'm not really there for sex. I'm, I'm there for Ken Jacobs. And I'm thinking, okay, this is going to either go really good or really bad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, sure. I really didn't know. But but, sure. but I, 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 I was whispering to her. And I said, Belinda, I'm not really here for sex. And she was real nice about it. She was, oh, okay, why are you here? And I said, I'm, I'm a friend of Ken Jacobs. And I could tell as soon as I said the word Kent Jacobs, I could see her shoulders relax. Hmm. And, and she was happy I was here. She, she let me know through her body language that it was okay to be there, that she wanted to talk about Kent. And, uh, and, but she said, but let's not talk here, Dennis. Let's, let's, let's get out of here. And so we got out of the bedroom. Right? I, was, I was only in the house a minute. And she walked me right back out of the house, got into my car, and we drove up to one of those, uh, uh, I forget the steak burger, uh, you can't go inside the restaurant. It's only drive-through only. I forget the name of that franchise. But we sat outside there. I bought her a hamburger and a milkshake, and we talked for a couple hours about Kent. And 
that's how I met her. And she turned out to be, she turned out to be somebody who's a nice woman. She chose a crazy lifestyle. She knows she did bad. She loved Kent. And she says, I'm not going down for this. Kent was my friend. And we, this is more important than anything. And Mr. and Mr. Police officer, this is what happened that day. And, and that's and her story. And that was the chart Royal. Yeah. And that was the day that she told you that she had gone up and had seen Kent standing outside the Godwin's trailer, and Charlotte was there that day that Kent disappeared. No, inside, inside the inside, Godwin's trailer. He, inside. At the screen door. Yeah, he was in, at the screen door. He was inside. Okay. Did you know that before you went to see her, saw, to see her or did you find that when you saw her that day? When I, when, when I, that's, that's how I found out. That's how you I found out. Charlotte. Okay. Right. Okay. Yeah. That had to be – I can't imagine something like that. I mean we – I've had some other cases where some people have taken some risks to find out information. But that has to be one of the crazier stories that I've that I've heard, Dennis. Well. You I had to be – I mean you had to be a little scared. I mean obviously you were doing the right thing, but you had to be a little scared. You know, I wasn't really scared until I actually sat in her bed because I knew I was surrounded by a bunch of these people that probably weren't happy I was there. And I didn't know I didn't know if Belinda was going to go crazy on me or what, but uh, yeah. I really had a hard time finding her. So when I found her, I said, "I'm not going to let this. I got I got to take this opportunity." So, what has become of some of these people that were probably involved in this disappearance, uh, like the Godwins? You you'd already said that they uh, are dead, maybe from OD or or, or whatever else. Uh, is that recently that ha- that happened, or was it around uh, the time about, of the di- time of the dig? No, they died about two years ago, and both brothers died within. I'm almost to the day six months, but I remember I had Kim Godwin in the car with me at one time, talking to me, and he came clean. He said, "He goes, Dennis. By now he's fifty. He goes, I've been doing heroin. I remember he said to me, I've been doing heroin since 1969. And he was born in 1960, I think. So he's not. He's a nine-year-old boy, and Somehow he's getting a hold of heroin. So the people in his life at that time, they weren't watching him. And then he got addicted to it. And then everything, the life's just spun out of control. So, mm-hmm. but anyway, he died. And then two, uh, six months later, his brother Donnie died or, or vice versa. I forget who died first. But you know what's really interesting that I want to share with your audience? That, that woman I told you, Charlotte Royal? Yes. She was dating Donnie, Donnie Godwin. And I started learning a little bit about Charlotte Royal back in the 90s. And there's a newspaper article on that. Uh, I, I can send you the file so you can put it on your mm-hmm. discussion board. Um, somebody was breaking into homes and they were stealing uh, motor- um, lawnmowers, tractors. They were stealing guns. And they were hiding them in the woods in, in the thick, dense uh, pine, pine forest area. And it turns out that it was Charlotte Royal and a bunch of her idiot friends. And, and it made the front page of the local section of the uh, Fayetteville newspaper, right? And then, remember I told you she was dating uh, Roger Locklear, and then she started dating Donnie Godwin? Yes. Well, she graduated, and then she started dating a guy named Chris McMillan. Now, this is really interesting. Uh, I found out that Chris McMillan was uh, the manager of the Batteries Plus franchise in Fayetteville. And I couldn't find Charlotte. So I said, well, I'll just go over to a Batteries Plus and I'll ask Chris if he can help me talk to Charlotte. And, you know, this is early on before I realized mm. what, a, what, what, what people they are. So mm. I'm, I'm This is still like 2009 sometime. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah. Okay. So I get over to Batteries Plus. And I walk in there, and I ask to speak to Chris McMillan. And this guy's a big, strong-looking guy, but but I noticed he only he only had like six and a half, seven fingers. You, you can't miss that on somebody, you know. And I said, he goes, "How can I help you?" So I'm Dennis Mann. I'm a friend of a Kent Jacobs family. I'm here looking for Charlotte. And he looks at me kind of sternly. He goes, come here, follow me. And he walks me behind the counter into the back of the warehouse. So I'm away from his employees and close the door. And then he goes Adolf Hitler on me. He tells me that uh, I got no business showing up at his place of business. He's already personally investigated this. His wife's got nothing to do with Ken's disappearance. And how dare I show up coming around asking about Kent, right? I was thinking, oh, my gosh. So. That wasn't enough to intimidate me. I said, well, I'm going to keep looking around. So I got some more flyers. And then I found out uh, there's another town north of Fayetteville, about 30 miles. And I found out where where uh, this guy, Chris McMillan, was living. So I started passing flyers up in the neighborhood up there. And one lady kind of opened the door halfway. She took the flyer, looked at it, and she looked at me. She says, you really need to look at this Chris McMillan guy. And that kind of caught me off guard. I said, why? She goes, I can't tell you. Just Google it. And she shuts the door. And if your audience Googles Chris McMillan, M-C-M-I-L-L-A-N, yep. and the other keyword is Sprint, yep. the telephone company, they're going to notice that uh, two weeks before 9-11, this was August 28th of 2011, Chris was at work. And he was in the break room about 7.30 in the morning at, at Sprint. It, it wasn't the, You didn't walk in there and buy a phone. It was a big computer center, an information center for Sprint. And he was in the break room about 7.30 in the morning, and a bomb went off, believe it or not. And that's how Chris lost his fingers. And everybody freaked out. They called the police, the FBI. They cleared the building. And when the feds got there, or the, the police, they noticed a trail of blood from the vending machine all the way out of the break room down the hallway to where Chris McMillan's desk was. And underneath the desk, they find another pipe bomb, unexploded. So now they know that Chris is not the victim. He's the suspect, right? Yeah. And so they they take him under arrest, but they take him to the hospital because his hand is mangled. They get a search warrant for his house. They find more bomb-making material at his house. And remember, this is August 28th. Two weeks before two weeks. 9-11. Mm-hmm. But I want your audience to take a guess what happened on August 27th of, of 2001, a day earlier. What happened? And remember I told you the cops are always dealing with new new crimes coming in? Yeah. Well, the cops got another report of another crime. Somebody placed a bomb on the campus of the uh, North Carolina, uh, Chapel Hill, you know, where Michael Jordan went to school? Yeah. Now, it was unexploded. They caught it. But now the cops aren't stupid. They're putting two and two together here. And they confront Chris McMillan, and he admitted his role in it. He placed a bomb out there at NC State, uh, uh, Chapel Hill. So this is the guy that Charlotte Royal one who stole the money from Kent to buy drugs mm-hmm. is now married to. To this day, to this day, 2017. Yeah, and I was wondering, how does Chris get a job managing how is he, batteries pull up? How is he even out of jail? Uh, welcome to America. But I found out that Chris McMillan's family owned that Battery Plus franchise. So they parked in there because, you know, he couldn't get a job anywhere else. But yeah. curiously, when I found out about you, I called out to Batteries Plus just to see... And they said he no longer works there, and I don't know where he is right now. Huh. So that's story, yeah. That and 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 if we could talk about this, I mean, that's crazy. And I'm going to uh, by this time, by the time the people are 
hearing this, I will have linked to that article about Chris McMillan on the Unfound Discussion uh, okay, group on, on Facebook. So by the time people hear this, they'll they'll know at least a little bit about that story. And others that haven't gone there will hear about it now. Uh, but there's also something else about Charlotte Royal and her mother and who she married. And, and, and could there also be maybe some sort of government back room dealing going on here? What can you tell the, le- the listeners about that? Okay, this will be a good episode for Alex Jones because this might be conspiracy, but I, I was never able to nail it down. But okay. This is not nearly as solid as Detective Trogdon's search warrant. This could be out there. So remember I told you Detective Trogdon said we have to have nuisance and abatement come out to the property to see if they could declare it a hazardous waste, okay? Well, I found out that the, the, uh, um, the supervisor at that department was a guy named George Hatcher, H-A-T-C-H-E-R. Okay, well, Charlotte Royal uh, has a mother. She worked at the hospital out there at the gift shop at the, at the um, Fayetteville Hospital. Um, she met a guy that fell in love with her. Same name, George Hatcher. Now, I met George. I went to his house one day, and he was home alone. He invited me in. And George is a good man that did everything right in his life because he had a beautiful home, worked hard. And the problem was he fell in love with a woman who had short Royal as a daughter. And you should have seen the pain in his eye. He goes, I hate, I hate Charlotte Royal. I hate her, but mm-hmm. she's my, the love of my life's daughter. So I got to put up with her. Yeah. And, uh, but it turns out that his name is George Hatcher. And then I find out the man of the nuisance and abatement department, his name is George Hatcher. Oh, wait a minute. But, you know, to this day, I was never able to find out if they were the same person. I, probably not. That's why I said Alex Jones. Yeah. Here's, what, here's what I can assure you, though, uh, Dennis, that one of my listeners is surely going to look into that to find out if it's the same person. I, okay. I, I, the, the way my listeners are, uh, you know, they, they, they find out a lot of things about these cases after uh, they're covered on Unfound. So I'm sure somebody is going to do that very quickly. Uh, George Hatcher is not a common name, so the odds of it being the same guy are pretty good. But it does add in another layer as to why we're still talking about that property still not being dug up seven years later. Could it be somebody in that department that is still you know, getting in the way of that? I don't think uh, – I think a better use of your listeners' time, mm-hmm. if you can figure out a way – where you're not offending the sheriff's department is to sit them down and say, where is the refrigerator? Why has it not been dug up? Now, I think they're going to give you ABC, but you got to hold them. You got to almost, I don't mean to say this in a mean way, but you, you can't let them, you know, uh, zig and zag you their way out of that, that meeting. They've got to mm-hmm. answer that question. At the very least, Ken Jacobs deserves to have the mandate of that warrant fulfilled dig up the refrigerator, open it up, and see if there's a human being inside. Yeah. That's what the whole Ken Jacobs case boils down to right now. Yeah. You've gotten to know the Jacobs uh, very well. And in fact, we had yep. a three-way call with uh, Kent's sister just a couple days ago. Jackie. What is, yeah, Jackie. And what has this been for the, like for their family for the last 15 years? Well, you've been doing this a long time. All these families are going through a personal hell. And they all have their own way of grieving, you know, and uh, I just, I go through the same thing you go through. I'm around way too much, not only sadness, 
but I go around, I'm around so much unnecessary sanity. It's unnecessary to have the Jacobs go to bed at night not knowing what's in that refrigerator. Yeah. It's, 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 it's not necessary. That's true. And they deserve better, you know. But Kent has uh, two sisters, Kim and Jackie, and he's got two brothers, Keith and Kelvin, and uh, just just a, you know the Lumbee family tribe there. The good people, good people. Ken's father is deceased many years ago. Father Martha is a bedrock, uh, old school, loves God, very serious about her faith, and um, no-nonsense type of woman. And she, she runs a good household. The problem was March 10th, that $200 that Ken had his paycheck, normally his mother would take about 180 of it and put it in the savings account, and Ken could have his $20, go buy a six-pack of beer and some other stuff. you know. And that was enough to keep Ken happy. You know, yeah. you didn't have to buy Ken Xbox and big screen TVs. You know, he, Ken was just happy being just a lovable guy. But he met Shart Royal and Donnie Godwin, and then just things went south from there. Ran into them on the wrong day. Yeah, and the problem is you got Donnie and Kim are both dead, so they took their secrets with them. You know, there was another girl. Mm-hmm. We don't need to go into too total yeah. detail, but yeah. uh, a girl named Heather Monroe. She committed suicide yeah. at, at a young age, you know, in her late 20s. And uh, I don't know. She claimed to know something, but she was kind of out there. I don't know if she was hallucinating or not, but she was another one closest case that killed herself. So the people with the answers are dying. Charlotte really is the only one that's still alive that could be a guilty party. Uh, Yeah, there's one other guy we haven't spoke to, a guy named Pierre Skurlock, uh, Mm. who was dating Belinda Hall at the time. Mm. Um, But when I met him, he was literally on death's bed. He had AIDS. And hospice, and uh, I actually had Mrs. Jacobs um, come down to his trailer, and uh, she basically she she said, you know, if you have anything to do with my son, I forgive you, because her faith is not a joke to her. And she was talking to a, a person that was dying. To this day, I don't know if he's passed away or not, because I, I I'm not there anymore. But um, uh, Pierre Skurlock might have had some knowledge of the, of the case as well. But the key one, the key ones for your audience. Kim and Donnie Godwin, Charlotte Royal, Cliff Jones, Big Up the Refrigerator. That's what I want your audience to take away. All right. You have a website that's totally dedicated to uh, Kent Jacobs' disappearance. A lot of information there. It's a really good website, probably one of the best privately done websites on a case that I've seen in the last year. Tell the listeners what the address is and, and tell them a little bit about what they're going to find when they go there. Yep. Uh, find Kent, K-E-N-T, is a couple things. Um, I recorded Belinda Hall telling me about um, taking Kent's money from Charlotte and Donnie and selling drugs. You can listen to that recording on the website. I got it right there on the homepage. And also, what I mentioned, referenced earlier, there's a tab up there that says uh, read the search warrant. Just click on that. Luckily, Detective Trogdon is brief. It's not a 15-page search warrant. It's like two pages. She gets right to the point, and you can see it in there where she says there's probable cause to believe a human being is buried in, in that refrigerator on Cliff Jones's property, and uh, it needs to be dug up. But it's findkent.com. Findkent.com. Okay, are you on any social media? Are you on Facebook or anywhere like that, Dennis? Uh, not Everything I do there is on the website. Um, okay. Part of the reason that Kent doesn't have a really strong Facebook, the, the Lumbee Indian, the tribes there, um, back when I was building it, um, they're not really internet savvy. 
Okay. I remember um, Jackie at first said, don't even do a website. These people don't even have a light in their trailers, you know, some of these people. So um, there's not a strong Facebook thing for camp, but I, I should start it now, especially with your podcast. Sure. Right I, sure. I, I, yeah, I'd love to see that. And I would, of course, direct everybody to it. Um, if you, if you want to do that, maybe not this week or at some point in the near future, if you're going to do that, I want you to let me know so yeah, I can, can make I can sure it publicize before it. Before air date. Yeah. Before mm -hmm. air date. So you can get it up there. Okay, good. Uh, any last words, uh, Dennis, before we uh, conclude this interview for tonight? Well, I want to tell the audience something. Um, when I was talking to you the other night, I said, let me hang up with you. Let me call Jackie and ask her permission to do a three-way with you because I didn't want to mm -hmm. sandbag her. And I remember you said mm -hmm. to me, um, Dennis, if she does agree to talk to me, what she's going to say to me? And I said, well, I know Jackie. The first thing she's going to do, she's going to thank you from her heart for caring about her brother. And so I called Jackie. I got it. She goes, sure, I'll do it. And I patched mm -hmm. you right in. Yeah. And the first thing Jackie said to you was, Ed, she thank you so me. much for taking That's right. absolutely true. So, that happened. Yes. They're, they're very grounded that way. And they're mm -hmm. like everybody else. Um, they don't expect police to do miracles, but when you got a search warrant that they get the refrigerator, I think they're in their right to expect to have that refrigerator dug up. That's not too much to ask. Right, right. I totally agree. And that's what Unfound's goal is going to be. The listeners are going to know about it. I know I have listeners in North Carolina. Uh, I think a lot of people are going to be outraged that this has gone on as long as it has. And hopefully uh, my listeners can help you and the family, you know, get this thing moving forward, you know, put pressure and on somebody to do something. It was your listener, Emily, who's the one that turned you that's on. Exactly, so that's exactly, yeah, yeah, Emily, yes. Emily yeah. Uh, does some nice work for me and uh, communicating with some people and, and reaching out to some families and things for me and setting up uh, conversations and things. She does a great job. Yes, I thank her very much. And I thank you for being on this episode of Unfound, Dennis. All right, thank you very much, Ed. Thank you, listeners. You're welcome. And that was my interview with Dennis Mayen, manager and owner of findkent.com. I thank him for being on the program. As you heard, he has worked on a couple other cases as well, so you'll probably be hearing from him again in regards to those disappearances. I also need to thank Jackie Jacobs. I only spoke to her for about 10 minutes, but I deeply valued that time, and I thank her for assisting in this episode. Unlike most of the other disappearances we've covered, there's not a lot of speculating and theorizing to do. There are no overlooked facts to point out. I'm not sure there's any amateur sleuthing to be done in this case at all, because to me there doesn't seem to be much of a mystery. All that needs to happen in this case is for the right people to do the right thing for it to be resolved. That's just an opinion, though. However, I'm going to ask all of you to do something else that's just as important, and I may not ask you to do this again for a very long time. Getting back to the theme of this episode, From the Outside, we don't know what it's like to be a cop, a private detective, a grieving family member, so it's hard for us, maybe even a little pretentious, to put ourselves in their shoes. But all of us do know about one thing. We've all had a boss, a supervisor, Someone we have to answer to regarding the work that we do. So I'm going to give you two email addresses. The mayor of Hope Mills and the head of the county commission for Cumberland County, which contains Hope Mills. I'm asking you to send messages to both of them. 
I'm not demanding, I'm not expecting, because I know this kind of activism isn't for everyone. But for those of you who are so inclined, I'd like you to tell those two people where you're from. Ireland, Australia, Mexico, hey, even here in the United States, wherever. I want you to tell them what you heard on this episode. Put it in your own words. And I'd like you to ask these two officials as leaders in their communities to ask the police to make Kent Jacobs' disappearance a priority again. I want you to be respectful. Most importantly, no swearing, no anger, no Monday morning quarterbacking, no snarkiness, no name-calling, because that's not what we do here. And frankly, if you can't control your emotions in emailing them, I'd rather you just not email them at all. Let's see if we can get things going again here. Let's see if we can get some new digging done on the Jones property. Let's see if we can get Charlotte Royal in front of a detective. Let's see if we can get answers for the Jacobs family. The two emails are, and these are business emails, these are not these two people's personal emails. The email for the mayor of Hope Mills, her name is Jackie Warner, is jwarner, J-W-A-R-N-E-R, at townofhopemills.com. Glenn Adams is the name of the chairman of the Cumberland County Commissioners. His email is gadams, G-A-D-A-M-S, at co.cumberland.nc.us. And one more time, please be respectful. And that's the program. If you found it informative, please go to iTunes, Podomatic, and Stitcher and give Unfound a five-star review. I thank you for listening. I'm Ed Denzel, and you've been listening to Unfound. Thank you.